Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Jason. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you all. Um, all right, let me do the, the, the thank yous. First of all, thank you to the committee and the, uh, for asking me to speak. It's a, it is an honor and a privilege. And there's so many people that have volunteered. And raise your hand if you volunteered, if you're on the committee of this ARU or any. It's a lot. It took so many people. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I also want to thank my friend Glow, my normie friend, um, for coming to support me today. And Richard, the chair of this conference, Richard and I and uh, Glow have the pleasure of working our day jobs together. And uh, it's just an honor to work alongside you, Richard, and just have those little nods in the hallway. Because um, we don't work with all sober people. Um, so it's nice to look at Richard and just be like, what the fuck? Um, all right, if you hear nothing else, just know that I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I absolutely love Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and the life that it's given me. In a minute, God is going to take over. I'm going to stop breathing so heavy. It'll all be fine. Um, and, or it won't be fine. It doesn't matter. It'll all be, it'll all be what it's going to be. Um, so just let me start from the beginning. When pe- I always want to say, I'm not going to give a bu- big drunk but every speaker that says that then does a drunk for 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I'm like, not, don't say it. Uh, so I, I come from, a, my mom and dad are met in Sunday school when they were toddlers, so they literally have no memory without the other one in it, and they're still together. It's weird. Uh, I have an older sister who's lovely, and if you wanted a child, you would like a child like my sister. Uh, she came out of the womb and made her bed, and she's <laughs> she's never given my parents attitude. She they said no, she said okay. They said be home at ten. She came home at nine. She's just if you wanted a child, you really wanted my sister. She's fantastic. And uh, then I came out. Ah! Um, so every I have, I will say I've been a little restless, irritable, and discontent most of my life, and. Uh, my parents are not drinkers. I, I probably can count on one hand the amount of times I've seen my parent, my uh, father drink. Um, never drinking in the house. It was never like my dad didn't come home. It wasn't like bewitched and they'd come home and have a scotch. Like it was nothing. There was like, I just dated myself. Um, that's all right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, like my parents had parties. It was the 80s, so they would have parties and like, Back in the 80s, you would like bring a bottle of wine, a bottle of scotch, a bottle of liquor. Like that's what you brought to someone's house. Like now I think it's like scented candles or some bullshit. You know what I mean? But back in the 80s, it was always a bottle. And my dad would lay, they would take the bottle. He'd put it, all the bottles in the box and they'd go on the shelf in the garage. And I don't know why as a young kid, I was like, okay, there they go. There's where I just watched them. Um, I will tell you those boxes are still in the garage. Those boxes have dust on them, and most of those bottles are half water at least. Um, so, God love my parents. They have no idea what's in the garage. I, have an, I was an alto sax player until I was kicked out of the band. Um, 
in high school, but the, my saxophone case is still in the garage, and my parents think there's a saxophone in it. I hocked that like 30 years ago. Um, it's fine. They can think whatever they want to think. Um, but they're good people, really hard workers, good people. Um, I will say they didn't know what hit them. They did not have alcoholism in their childhood homes. So they didn't, when alcoholism moved in with my family, um, cause that's what it is. Alcoholism moves in, you know what I mean? And takes over the whole fucking house. Um, so my alcoholism moved in when I was really young and my parents had no idea what was happening. Um, Many years, my dad just didn't talk to me. Just It was very uh, cordial. He's a very cordial man, not a lot of words. Looked at me weird, like, you know, he would look at me like, that's not really how people behave. Um, I thought it was totally normal. Many, My sister was older than me. We have a very unusual last name. So when I got to high school, they would all be like, oh, my gosh, you must be Cheryl's brother. And I was like, ugh, not the same, not the same. Um... My first drink, I was by myself. I don't know why I drank that day. I went to those boxes of liquor. I went down to the creek, two warm Cokes. I sat on the creek and had a little party all by myself. I loved it, having a great time. Went home, made it to the driveway, threw up all over the driveway. The exact same moment, my dad pulled into the driveway after work, and he's a lovely man. He doesn't know that anyone would be drunk at 15. He was like, it must have been something you ate. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they just didn't know. They just didn't know. The first time someone said something about my alcoholism, I remember it was uh, the, the first or second week of uh, uh, my senior year, and uh, my English teacher, Mary Dauber, had me stay after class, and uh, she shut the door, and she said, do you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? And I became defiant and got tears in my eyes and did the, how dare you think that about me? Um and I was shit-faced. It was the 80s. The best part about going to school in the 80s, we had the guys wore hairspray, so I had a L'Oreal hairspray bottle filled with vodka. And I would just go to my locker. <laughs> um, but I will tell you, I busted my ass in Mary Dauber's class to get an A because I didn't want her to know. And uh, I, oddly, just those random circumstances, I was able to have lunch with Mary Dauber about two weeks ago here in Austin and just tell her my whole story. And she was just like, a teacher could only say that in the 80s. She's like, in the 90s or the 2000s, if the teachers brought up anything about drug use. And I was like, I actually did a little bit of drugs with some of the teachers, but that's a whole nother story. Um, right. And I wasn't a great alcoholic. I brought beer to school. Um, and I got in trouble for having beer in school because I had two cases of beer in the back of my car. I drove a hatchback. I didn't think that through, and I was, like, arrogant and an ego, so I parked in a faculty spot. So I parked in a faculty spot with a hatchback with two cases of beer right through the glass. Um, I'm, I, I mean, I'm a good alcoholic, but I'm not real smart. Um, so it, just a series of events. I just, it was somehow we got me through high school, and I mean we because my mother had many conferences of begging, and my sister did all my homework. So the family got me through high school. And uh, it was what happened to me as I drank, and I drank around the clock. And uh, did the light just go off? Okay. Um, all right, that's weird. Uh, the lights are flickering, right? I'm not crazy. Okay. Because I will tell you, my very first AA meeting, I saw a cat come through one window and go across the table, not the other window. And I was like, I'm not, I don't know if anyone else saw that cat. <laughs> 
So that, I was just having this, like, is anyone else seeing these lights flash? Okay, well, all right, we're fine. Um, so what happened is I ended up in, I'm from Maryland, and um, as our speaker last night, um, there's a lot of Marylanders here, which is cool. Um, so what happened is I lived in downtown Baltimore. I was college. I had a fake ID, John Paul Pursuit on Cathedral Street. I made it very Catholic because I thought if I got pulled over, I'd be good. You know what I mean? It was Catholic. Um, so what happened is I drank nonstop. My life ended up on Charles Street at 20 years old, and um, I lived at the 1000 block of Charles Street. I worked at the 1200 block of Charles Street, and I went to college on the 1600 block of Charles Street. My life was six blocks, and uh, that was it, and it was exhausting. And I was about 30 minutes from my parents, and I hadn't seen them in months, six months to a year. I had not seen I was exhausted with this life and these six blocks. There was about four restaurants. I worked at all of them. I got fired from all of them. Um, I, I'm one of those people. What, my last job, I worked at this place called Mount Vernon Stable, and I started as a bartender, and then I was a bar back, and then I was a waiter, then I was a busboy. Now, I'm so sick that I think... I still have a job. Everything's fine. It wasn't until I was dishwasher that I was like, this isn't exactly, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going backwards. And I loved being the dishwasher because I didn't have to talk to patrons. I could smoke. I could have a beer. The cook was this um, transgender woman named Mother. And Mother and I would just sit there and listen to Tina Turner and smoke and get shit-faced. And I was like, this is so ridiculous that people have jobs where you can't drink, fools. And... um <laughs> So I had a boyfriend, the love of my life. We were going to be together forever. You know that first one. You're going to be together forever. It's going to be perfect. We broke up at 3 o'clock in the morning with uh, another guy, cops, his parents, my parents, blood. And uh, <clears throat> so I was like, I think this is over. And, um, and I will tell you, every breakup I've had in sobriety, the cops have not been invited. But before sobriety, they were at every breakup. Um, so I left Baltimore because I had met a guy which caused a little problem in my relationship. Um, I had met a guy who gave me a phone number on a cocktail napkin and said, if you're ever in New York, call me. We didn't have texts or phones or not. It was literally on a cocktail napkin. So in my fury and rage and the Baltimore is not big enough for the both of us, um, I packed a bag. I had about $100 and I went to New York City. I'd never been to New York City and uh, got to Port Authority bus station. And I called this guy and he didn't answer. He didn't answer and uh, slept at Port Authority bus station for a couple of days. Kept calling, kept calling. He answered. I explained to him who I was. <laughs> Apparently I was not, didn't leave a great impression because he had no idea um, and no memory of giving me his phone number. And uh, apparently when he said, call me, it was totally rhetor rhetorical. Um, but I'm a good talker. I convinced him I showed up at his doorstep like 30 minutes later, and I lived with him for a year and a half. And um, we're still really good friends today. And I showed up that day. It was a Tuesday. I showed up in uh, New York City wearing my Baltimore uniform of pleated khakis and a blue Oxford. And that was like about 5, 36 o'clock in the afternoon. That night I was at Club Pyramid, 1991, wearing platform shoes. And my ear had gotten pierced. And somebody's rubber pants and these platform Doc Martens that were two sizes too small for me. And I don't know what happened that afternoon, but I turned into, in literally hours, this New York City East Village club kid, and I loved it. Um, I'm not one of those people that said, oh, my God, all the drinking, you know, all my drinking stories were awful. They Most were, but uh, 
I had a lot of fun in the early 90s in the East Village. It was really a good time. Um, lived in this 3,000-foot warehouse, and uh, it was an old firehouse, and turned. there was five of us. Like, I didn't know my roommate. Like, I'd meet him in the kitchen, and they'd be like, I live here. And I'd be like, oh, my God, so do I. Um, <laughs> it was weird. We had a catwalk. I was literally like 120 pounds. I hadn't eaten in months. My parents hadn't found me. Um, and I was, <laughs> I was working at a, I had gotten fired from a restaurant there. It was actually a good job. And so I had, uh, obtained a job at Dick's Bar. Yeah. And on 12th Street and 2nd Avenue. And I had the Monday and Tuesday afternoon shift. And, uh, I thought I had arrived. I was a New York City bartender. I mean, a Dick's Bar. The uniform were Doc Martens and Calvin Klein underwear. That was it. Um, and this is where I lie. I worked Monday and Tuesday. That was it. I had Bill Funderburg sat at the end of the bar, and he drank Budweiser and a champagne flute. And I was like, he's fancy. <laughs> um, somehow my parents found me, and I'm sitting at that, standing at that bar um, Tuesday afternoon, and uh, I hear my mother's sweatsuit. You know the 90s sweatsuit? Shh, shh, shh. And I turned around, and there is her Baltimore blonde helmet, these huge earrings, that sweatsuit. And I just was like, oh, my God. And uh, immediately got mad. Never thought to be like, oh, my God, my parents are worried about me. They love me. They came and found me. I was just like, what are you doing here? This is my job. Um, but the good news is they showed up the same week that I got evicted. So we were able to move me um, via my parents' Cadillac and trash bags. Um, so I got fired from that job again. That job, I got fired at uh, Knife Point, apparently about stealing money and sleeping with the owner's boyfriend. And uh, anyway, and so <laughs> whatever. He got real mad about it, and I was like, whatever. And then he pulled out a knife, and uh, whatever. I jumped the bar, and I ran down the street to another bar because to tell the, all the drunk people, I ran down to, a, I don't remember the name of it, Boiler Room. And uh, still wearing my uniform of Doc Martens and the Calvin Klein underwear. Um, and so now I was unemployed, and, that, and I just started drinking. And I started drinking with abandon, and I, I started, as the book talks about, and I just drank. And is what happened to me is, oh, I'm going to rush this, is what happened to me is I went out on New Year's Eve, and I woke up January 2nd in Governor's Hospital in Lower East Side, Manhattan, and uh, the dry erase board at the foot of the bed said John Doe. I remember leaving the house on New Year's Eve. No idea what happened to January 1st. And January 2nd, I was now a John Doe. And I got scared. It's a good time to get scared. You know what I mean? And uh, in that split second that I got scared, my ego switched on. And I was like, don't they know who the fuck I am? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not John Doe. Like, I mean, ego that big. Took out all my um, IVs my, or whatever I was hooked up to and uh, put my club clothes back on and walked home. Um, in like disco shorts and a chartreuse velour biker jacket and uh, chartreuse is not my color um, <laughs> because I already had like yellow skin and a distended liver and I was like you know what goes with that yellow chartreuse it doesn't um, so I was I walked home and my roommate said where have you been and I was like oh I just went out to get cigarettes like I made it no big deal like I was in the hospital labeled John Doe but it scared me to not drink so here's what I saying. I did not drink for 14 months in New York City my last 14 months in New York I did not drink I got a full-time GA job I got a full-time night job 
And I will tell you, those 14 months were the worst 14 months for an alcoholic. I had no solution. I had no program, no 12 steps, no sponsor, no big book, no higher power, nothing. And I didn't have my liquor. I was insane. Um, the good news is I was in Manhattan, so I kind of fit in. Um, but I was neurotic. I was angry. I was like that chain smoker that would steal a cab from an old lady. You know what I mean? I'd be like, get the fuck, it's my cab. Like, I was just angry all the time. Um, the blizzard of 96 happened. It was freezing and uh, for months. It was awful. And I had some friend in Los Angeles that said, come visit me. I went and visited her. Never been to California. I don't really look places over before I move. Um, Went to Los Angeles, arrived, and I drank that night. The day I arrived, I went to the Revolver on Santa Monica Boulevard. This guy, Julian, said, do you want a Miller Lite? And I was like, I do. Like, I really do. And uh, I remember the bottle, and there was a little dew on it, and the little cocktail napkin. Like, I remember the whole thing. And it was the biggest sense of relief. Like, I could turn it off. And so then I started on this two and a half year of drinking in Los Angeles, and now I'm driving, and everything is getting worse. I have a job. I'm getting demoted again and again and again. And, you know, I started at a desk with a phone, and the next thing I know, I'm driving the truck around Los Angeles. And so I was driving this five-ton, 26-foot truck um, I ran into the gas station. I came out of a blackout, and I didn't know if I was going straight or making a turn, and I just took my hands over the wheel and ran smack into this gas station. And uh, I reached for my cigarettes, which is not something you should do when you run into a gas station. And everyone came running out, and I pop out of the blackout, and I have no idea what is happening. But, I mean, people are surrounding this truck. Oh, the guy I was working with and the passenger, he disappeared. He disappeared. Um because I was like at noon and I had already hit a tree like at nine. And so I come out of this blackout and I look to my coworker, gone. I've never seen him since, gone. Um, so I needed this to say, I, I was asked to leave that job. And, um, and the gas station got a nice remodel from the insurance money. But anyway, um, so here I am unemployed. Um, I, I have this apartment, I get a roommate and, um, it's not like someone I want to live with. Do you know what I mean? Like he's a friend of a friend, but there's not a lot of people lined up to live with drunkie. You know, it's just, they're not there. And so I said yes to living with this guy. And, uh, I mean, he saved my life. He's just, he's one of those guys that just is compassionate and loving and caring. And he has since passed away from another disease, but, um, he had a job with like a briefcase and a tie. Um, which to this day baffles me. I don't even know where you buy a briefcase and I have one tie and it's for funerals and weddings. I don't, I don't know. It's just not my thing. Um, but I would play this game with him and he would get like at night, I'd be like, what time are you getting up in the morning? Cause I did not, <laughs> I was unemployed for 18 months. Um, that was the Clinton years and he just kept extending unemployment. I was like, okay. Um, Keep extending it. I literally worked 20 minutes a day, and that was literally call 20 minutes a week, I mean, calling the unemployment and putting in my code. Did you look for work? Yep, sure did. Please, I did. Sure, 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 sure. That's it. I worked for about 20 minutes every other week um, for 18 months and just drank, 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 drank. 
So one day he said, I said, what time are you getting up in the morning? He tells me. And um, so I backed into it. The game was I would back into it and get to the kitchen, get a couple beers, get to my room, listen for him to go out the front door. And then I could go out in the living room and drink the way people are supposed to drink. Do you know what I mean? I could put, turn on people's court. I could drink all day. And uh, I messed up the timing one day and... I bumped into him in the hallway at seven o'clock in the morning with two beers. And, uh, he, the best thing he ever could have said to me, he said, Jason, you have to do something about your drinking or I have to call your family. And he left. And the best thing he did was leave. If he would have stayed five minutes, 10 minutes, I'm so manipulative. I would have circled that conversation and he would have been apologizing for me to not minding his own business. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I was not good. And I can tell you, this guy, like, he kept his alcohol in the trunk of his car, you know? And one morning, he, I mean, one night in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and I'm army crawling across his room to get his keys. Do you know what I mean? Like, he put up with a lot of shit. <laughs> um, anyway. But he left. And so I went on the balcony of our apartment, and... I did the alcoholic cry. You know, the really ugly one. You know, we, most of us have done the ugly one. Ooh, snot. Cigarettes full ashtray. And then all of a sudden, my ego clicked in. And I was like, who the hell does he think he is? Nothing's wrong with my life. This, he's the one that has to work. I don't. Yeah, so it's like... It was disgusting. And I got to tell you, my bedroom, the sheets had not been changed in over a year. The blinds had not been opened in over a year. There was big gulp cups. There was a 7-Eleven at the end of the street. There's big gulp cups all over my room. Some of them had beer. Some of them had urine. All of them had cigarette butts. And I will tell you, I drank out of every fucking one of them. It was disgusting. Don't, I love it when people judge in AA meeting. Please. Please. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it was just this really disgusting life I was leading. I, uh, you know, I had this, like, I had a license plate stealing kit in my car because I didn't have registration. I didn't have an insurance. Like, I literally would be like, oh, my God, I've had those tags on for about a month and a half. I should go get new tags. And, um, and I would just, just, like, I just, I had no idea how to live. I, I would get my unemployment checks, and I would go to, on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Wilcox, I'd go to the check cashing lady, and I'd be like, here's some bills, here's unemployment. Like, she was my banker assistant, she was everything. And I would be like, I need to pay the cable bill, they're going to turn it off. And she'd be like, no, boo, you got to pay electricity first. I was like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 electricity first. That's good, that's good. Um, I mean, that was my life. So he left, and he went to work. And my, my attitude kicked in. I walked two blocks down the street to get, my, to get in my car because I couldn't park in front of my house because it was stolen plates, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, so I walked down and I got, my, I got into this. I had a red Volvo station wagon that had a car seat in it. I got nothing. I have no idea. I don't know why it had a car seat in it. I think I bought it with the car seat in it. I have no idea. But I would buy my beer and buckle my beer in the car seat. <laughs> It had dents everywhere. It was a wind-up sunroof that had gotten stuck many, many years ago. So it was like two inches open at all times. So it had rained and mildew. And it was just, 
but I would still run around like driving like, oh, I got a Volvo. It was awful. Um, so I left the house that day and I just went driving around. It was Tuesday morning. I went driving around. Oh, I got to tell you, it was the Tuesday after Thanksgiving is when I got sober. I found out it was Thanksgiving because the Monday morning I had opened my refrigerator and there was a turkey carcass in there. And I thought that was odd. And so I asked my roommate about this turkey carcass and he said well, it was, he was going to make turkey soup with it because it was left over from Thanksgiving. And then I got real mad because apparently there was a Thanksgiving dinner that I was not invited to. And he... And it, but it, made, it was starting to make sense because my parents were calling like three or four times that day. And I was like, why the fuck are they? Leave me alone. I had no idea. It was, I had no idea. Um, it was Thanksgiving. And then I got mad at him. Why didn't you invite me to your family's house for Thanksgiving? And then he was like, would you invite yourself somewhere in public? And I was like, oh, how dare he? Um, so I leave the house this morning and I drive around Hollywood trying to figure out, you know, who I'm going to hang out with because, you know, a lot of people, I mean, it's Tuesday at 1030. People are at work. They're, that's where they are. They're at work. And so I don't really have any friends to hang out with. I don't have any friends. And so I go to, many of you might know of these places, but there's a parking lot. There's a fee at the door. And you choose locker or room. And um, <laughs> I chose locker because times were tough. And um, <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. Tuesday morning at 1030. At this, anyway, so I'm walking around doing my strut, um, you know, wearing the towel that's too small. I'm completely yellow. You can see the liver over the top of the towel. Like, and still, I would see like a cute guy and be like, hey, like, what? It was so ridiculous. So I go by the pool because it's a nice place. They have a pool. And um, so I lay by the pool and I just do some leg action. You know, I see this guy with blonde hair and blue eyes and white teeth and he's really cute. And I was like, you know, I started believing in God like at that moment. And I was like, all right. And uh, so I did my best flirt. You know what I mean? You know, dropped the towel. And um, I started talking to him and he said, do you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? craziest question on Tuesday morning. I looked at him and for some strange reason I told this guy the truth. I said, I do and I cannot stop. 10.30 in the morning, I went from this place to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous December 1st, 1998. I've been sober ever since. I'm still very good friends with him, and uh, he's the very first person I call December 1st every year. Never missed a year. For 23 years, I've called him. Um, so this first meeting he took me to, I had to make sure we got a meeting out of West Hollywood because I didn't want all my friends to see me. Um, I didn't have any friends. and uh, <laughs> But like if the potential was there, I didn't want them to see me at an AA meeting. And he was like, all right, Queen, we'll go to one in, in Santa Monica. And uh, so we went to this meeting. The first speaker was Bobby, Miss Bobby from Long Beach. And uh, she was telling her story. I had no idea what she was talking about. I hated the room. It was loud. And uh, he sat me in the front row and then left. Like, apparently he had a coffee commitment. So that was my first resentment. How dare he bring me across town and leave me? Um, and then people were walking in, like, you guys hug each other and say, hi, how are you? How are things? Did you get the job interview? Blah, blah, blah. Like, people were talking. I was just sitting in the front row like, this is insane and loud, and I don't like any of them. 
Um, and then the speaker started speaking, Miss Bobby from Long Beach, and uh, she told her story. We have nothing in common. She is a Latin woman, family of eight kids. She served 12 years in a federal penitentiary, um, drug dealer, raised hairless dogs, and lived in a garage. Um, fired from various... We just had, like, a lot, uh, nothing in common. But she started speaking about alcoholism. And I didn't know she was speaking about alcoholism, but I, it all of a sudden... In one meeting, my very first meeting, it all made sense. She talked about the phenomenon of craving. She talks about how when she starts, she she can't stop. And uh, all those questions were answered. All the questions from high school, the uh, who do you think you are? Why do you act that way? They were all answered this first meeting. I was blown away. And then, so I cried and uh, in the front row. And they took me to dinner and... There's this diner we would go to, and uh, it was U-shaped, and they put the newcomer in the middle, and then they'd slide in, and um, <laughs> and you were stuck. And uh, they, I didn't order for myself; they ordered for me. Like literally, it was just like shut up. And um, <laughs> they ordered me a half a cup of coffee because I was shaking, so my full cup would have been a mess. And I remember them telling the waiter, "Just give me half a cup," and I was like. Um, like, you know, I had this, like, ego, like, I'm an adult. And um, I, I had peed my pants, like, the day before. But I was like, I'm an adult. Um, they all talked about themselves. Um, I, was, I thought eventually someone was going to ask my opinion on the evening, and they had not. Um, and then we all left, and we got in the car, and James dropped me off at my house. And he said, it was Tuesday, he said, tomorrow you have to be ready outside at 5.30. And I was like... <laughs> 5.30? Like, I'm busy. He was like, you're not busy. 5.30 p.m., be outside of your house. I have to work tomorrow night. Someone will pick you up. And then I was like, I'm not getting in a stranger's car. And uh, he was like, you've been doing it for years, queen. Get outside of your house. <laughs> um, so I got outside of my house at 5.30 the next day. This car pulls up. Some guy named is Francis is driving. The guy in the passenger seat looked like Ronald McDonald. These spenders, this curly red. I was like, what is happening? Um, and they sat in the back seat. We drove to the meeting, the entire meeting, on the way there, on the way back. Blah, no questions about me. Um, and they just kept talking about their lives and how great it is. No one asked how I was doing. Same thing, we went back to that diner again. I got the newcomer seat, they go in the parking lot, and someone says, have you thought about getting a sponsor? No, not at all. Um, I'd only heard the word sponsor like the first, the day before, and that, like I didn't, I was like, no, I hadn't really thought about it. And um, he said, I think you should find a sponsor. And I said, y you can do it. And uh, you know, with the honor and privilege, I was like, you can do it. And uh, he was like, no. You're going to have to ask me to be your sponsor. And I looked around. I was in this parking lot. I looked around to make sure none of my friends saw me ask for help. And there was no, there was no one there. And um, so I said, Francis, will you be my sponsor? And he said, I will. And you will call me every morning at 6.30 a.m. And you will not speak with any, sleep with any of the other guys I sponsor. And I was like, who do you think I am? And he said, a drunken whore, call me in the morning.
I called him at 6.30 the next day. Um, I will just say about my experience, I was so beaten down and had no solutions, and I was sick enough that I listened to the most outrageous things these people would tell me to do. I had no other options. And and I think they were not outrageous. They were teaching me how to live a life. I had no idea. I had none, none. So um, we uh, started on this journey of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we started doing the steps. And the God, 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 I don't have a problem with God. Whatever. It's fine. I mean, whatever. I just, I had no negative or positive. I was completely neutral on the subject. Do you know what I mean? Like, I grew up Methodist. was just really Christian light. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's like Eastern, maybe a hat, maybe not. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really, it's not really, no. Um, or we would drive by the church in the, on Christmas Eve, and the parking lot would be full, and my mother would be like, well, we tried, and that was it. <laughs> full. So I didn't really have any negative God or anything. Um, and so he was like, you've got to, you know, I just talked about this yesterday. You have to connect with a higher power. And I was like, how do you do that? How do you do that? And uh, so he would give me these exercises. And I did them because I was so sick. So how he got me to learn about God, I had to put God in the passenger seat before I drove. What? Like, I opened the passenger's door. I would put God in. And I put the seatbelt on because God wears the seatbelt. I would shut the door, run around and get in the driver's seat and go to where I was going. And then when I got to where I was going, I'd get out and I'd run around the car. I'd let God out, take the seatbelt off. we go into where we're going to go. And then when that was done, I'd do the same. And I just kept doing, I kept doing. And it was like three or four months. And I was like, this, I look crazy. <laughs> uh, and then I had to, we had to like, one of our commitments, we had to pick up newcomers at this recovery house. And you just... It was different before. It wasn't before cell phones or anything. They were just like, you, 7.30, this address, just be there, fill your car up. And um, I was there, 1919 Beachwood Avenue, Van Ness House, pulled up in front, three guys walked out. I was like, oh, I only got room for two. I got two gods up here, buddy. <laughs> and uh, and I only took two. I think I just, I didn't know. And uh, we went to this meeting and... Um, and that's how I lived. And then uh, I was like, this looks like a little crazy to my sponsor. I was like, can we do something else? And then so he was like, yeah, 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 we can do this. So I do this. Many people will see me do this. It's my hands like this. It's my, he's called it a God claw. But it just, I do it all the time whenever I'm in a weird situation or why well, I want to call upon my higher power. I just do this God claw like we're holding hands. And it works for me. I, it, it works for me. It might look ridiculous. It might look like I'm arthritic or something. It doesn't matter. It works for me. Um, so I, here I am. Um, I just got to tell you, I just love, I had this, uh, the most amazing sponsor. And uh, he would say things to me. He would call me three different names, never Jason. But he would call me Mary when we were it was, it, joking about something. Queen, if I was, he would literally shout across the room, Queen, get up here. Um, but when he called me doll, I was getting ready to have the most compassionate man ever. And at two years sober, uh, so, uh, September 11th happened, and uh, my mother had breast cancer. I lost my job. It all happened in the same week. And um, not that one has anything to do with the other. I'm just saying this was the same week. Everything happened. And I called my sponsor about my mother. And at this point in time, I hadn't really talked to my dad. Like, eh, you know, I just obviously... 
I got sober on December 1st. And I said, I'm going to go home for Christmas. My sponsor was like, oh, no, you're not. They don't want you yet. And I was like, okay. Um, and he was right. They didn't. So I said, I called him and he just answered the phone. He goes, doll, I'm so sorry. Buy a one-way ticket and go home. I'm like, go home? Like, go home to my childhood home? And I did. And it was fantastic. And I was like, I went to every chemo appointment with my mom. I'd make all the other ladies laugh. And I'd make them switch wigs. I was like, all right, everybody switch wigs. (laughs) And I would just, I went to every single appointment with her. And my sponsor said, you are allowed to say, mom, what do you need? You are never allowed to say, I know how you're feeling. So I, did, I literally would just be like, Mom, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And this bitch would, oh, she would think of the craziest shit. Um, <laughs> one night she wanted lime, sherbet, lime. I was like, all right. So for the third grocery store, I was like, there's no lime, sherbet. Like, there was a lime, raspberry, pineapple swirl. She wanted lime. So I brought the swirl home. She'll be fine. I was like, look, I brought the swirl. She said, I just want lime. Mm. <laughs> I sat in that kitchen with a paring knife and cut out all the lime <laughs> sherbet. And I'd do it again. In the waiting room at those hospitals, I spent time with my dad. We'd sit on opposite ends of the waiting room because it was really hard. And uh, by the end of my mom's, serv- my, my mom's services, God forbid, my mom's uh, treatment, my dad and I would walk around the halls of the hospital together and we'd go grocery shopping together. And I can tell you today, I have the most amazing relationship to my uh Mom and dad. My sister, not a big fan. Um, apparently, uh, something, apparently I ruined her wedding. Um, <laughs> there's no vision. I, apparently, I sang Whitney Houston. I was not invited to sing Whitney Houston. I also don't sing. And then I had to, it was put into a car by my 87-year-old grandmother at the time. She's the one that shoveled me in the car. Whoever was driving didn't drive stick shift. So we just left my sister. It was... In my defense, I was like, I will behave for your next wedding. And she was like, um, so, and they're, they're, they're still married. So she was not thrilled with me. My brother-in-law was not a fan at all. I hadn't seen them in a very long time. We, we, there was, it was very strange. Like, I'm talking, I would go home for Christmas, and we would have to juggle when my parents would go to my sister's house, because I wasn't allowed in their house, and... Uh, it was, it was really just, it, I put so much on my parent, on my family. Um, and I just, when I got to those steps, like all the resentments I had to my sister, like she's the most amazing woman I've ever met. And I wouldn't have been alive or who I wouldn't be the man I am today without my sister. I have wonderful parents. I would not be the man I am today without my sister. She helped me so much and she cared about me and she always kept me safe. And, uh, we have an amazing relationship today. Um, I want to say, not, at nine and a half years sober, um, career was going well. When I did my fourth step with my sponsor, he said, what is something you never told anybody? And I told him that secret. I'm not going to tell you guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is the thing that pains me the most. It is the thing at 51 years old and 23 years sober that will still wake me up in the middle of the night. It is a behavior that I did that is irreparable. And I told him. Did it make it better? No. No, it's still an awful feeling. Um, but did it feel better that someone else knew, that someone helped carry that burden? And uh, 
he helped carry that burden. He still helps carry that specific burden. Um, um, and then he also said, he was like, what's something else you never told me? What do you want to do? And I just was like, I want to be a comedian. Um, I never told anybody. It was like the secret dream of mine since like third grade. I was like, I want, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And uh, I went and did it. And like my first show, my entire sobriety family was there. The bar wasn't happy because they didn't make a lot of money. But <laughs> I had this support. And I got to tell you, that was my career for 15 years. I traveled this country being a stand-up comedian and turned into a cruise ship comedian. And I was jumping ships all over the country from one to the other. And it was amazing. And I was like, how, I, how did that happen? Do you know what I mean? Like... And uh, I loved that career. And I will tell you, it stopped. It stopped. And that's what I love about this program. Like when you're connected with your higher power and you feel safe and I know I can make decisions, I can make difficult decisions. I was at uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana at the, uh, oh, what was it? Snickers Comedy Club, headlining Snickers. And um, I pulled up and the sign said, Snickers, Jason Duty, help wanted. And I was like... <laughs> Wow. Um, and uh, I did it. I did my shows, and I walked off that stage. Not, I've not been on stage since. I was done. I knew I was done. I had a great, great time being on the road and traveling this world by yourself is very lonely. I was very lonely, and I was very sad most of the time. And I would do this fake thing on stage for about an hour. And then I would go back to my cabin, my room, strange town, strange country, strange boat, and be so sad and I was getting I didn't know when I was going to drink but I know I was and I I walked down there and I that's it I, that's it I just walked away and people like you did what and I did I was ready for my next career um but yes I was scared and all of that no I didn't have money saved I was a comedian I didn't have any money saved like we don't no health insurance nothing I, but I was 43 years old and said I wanted a different life for myself and I walked away from it um, I do want to tell you, like at nine years sober, I had stopped going to meetings. Uh, the career had taken off. I was traveling around the world. Um, I was so busy. You know what I mean? Just so busy. And, um, and meetings in LA, parking's bad. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, mm. um, and you're kind of annoying. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah, they're kind of annoying. I'm not going to go there anymore. And I stopped going to meetings. I stopped participating in my program. And, uh, one night, I, I, I went nuts. I started searching for something to fix me. And I picked up a guy on Sunset and Vine that worked by the hour. And um, yes, he did. And uh, I went on this crazy night of running drugs with him from Los Angeles to Long Beach. It was, it was insane. And I was so in it. I kept, he had a gun on his lap. And I, meanwhile, I'm so sick. I'm like, oh, this will work out. I think he's a great catch. Um, I mean, he's got two jobs. Wow. Um, and at 7.30 in the morning, I got off the freeway in Los Angeles, Sunset Boulevard, facing west. And I screamed, get out of my car. I'm going to die. And um, someone with carrying an illegal gun selling drugs and is a hooker, mm, they want to get away from somebody that's going to die. Do you know what I mean? So he jumped out of the car like I was nuts. Um, 
and I called my sponsor. At 7.30 in the morning, he said, Doll, I'll put on a pot of coffee. That's all he said. I went to his house. He had a pot of coffee, the big book, yellow legal pad, and I started writing. No judgment at all. No, he had no judgment. And uh, we judge a lot here, you know. I love the, oh, my God, I'll never do that when I'm 10 years sober. Oh, my God, can you believe he acts like that at 20 years? Is all I want to say is stay for the whole show. (laughs) Stay for the whole show. You have no idea what he, she, them is going to do or what you're going to do. And that was not my plan. I was on top of AA. Do you know what I mean? Like I had a solid program. So solid, I didn't need to go to meetings anymore. That's what I did it almost 10 years sober. And uh, he got me back on track and I didn't drink. And I did all the work I needed to do. And uh, I'll tell you, I uh, very shortly after that, I met and fell in love. And uh, it was fantastic. And uh, we were living in Los Angeles and got married. And uh, he was... He's from Los Angeles, and uh, he wanted to move, and um, I was okay with it. I got to tell you, there was no, I, I had never thought about it, but I was like, you know what? I think 17 years in Los Angeles, yeah, it's time to go. Let's go see something else. Drove around the country for two months, no plan, no city. We had no idea. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, we showed up in Washington, D.C., got a job with a company. I volunteered at this company because she wouldn't pay me. Um, Sorry, she knows her. Um, But I'm totally fine with it. No resentment. Um, And I'm still with that company today, and it's been the best career move. I could not be happier. Um, My husband is a wonderful, wonderful man, and his sobriety date changed. And um, I will leave it at that. His sobriety changed, and our house got crazy. And uh, at the same time, I was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So he's doing what he does with his disease. I'm doing what I do to stay alive with my AA program and now getting chemo. And I'm telling everybody how horrible my husband is. And I'm the one that is in bushes outside of his IOP in the bushes with the chemo port, seeing if he's okay. And I had a friend with me one day, and she just looked at me. She goes, oh, you're the sick one, honey. I was like, what? You know what I mean? I was like, <laughs> um, and so I had to walk away from that marriage. I had to walk away. And um, it was awful, and it was horrible. And I will tell you, he's coming up on five years sober next month, and he's an amazing man. And uh, we are not supposed to be married. And that's it. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm, I'm so grateful he's sober now, and I'm so grateful that I stayed sober. Um, so I went through that cancer, like I was saying, and I was in, in remission. It was a, I'll tell you, uh, this does have a lot to do with the program because of the God and the, the seatbelt and the holding the God claw and all that. When I'm hit with stage four cancer and I'm going through chemo, all of that 20 years of connecting with my higher power, that's, when it came in, I didn't know the date, the time that it was going to come in. And that's where it came in. I was fine. 
I was fine. I was in that parking lot of my first chemo, and I was like, oh, my God, give me a sign. Give me a sign that it would be okay. Give me a sign. You know, all of a sudden, because then I started looking up. You know what I mean? I was like, it might be a religious God. Let me look up. God, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Let me pray. Like, I was doing everything. I was like, hold on, hold on. So I go, I go into my first chemo room. I don't know what a chemo ro- room looks like, but it kind of looks like Manny and Petty chairs, really. And I was like, oh, I've been there. That's fantastic. Um, and I sit down next to this woman. I'm still praying. I'm like, oh, God, give me a sign. And this little four-foot woman... Literally, little tiny woman wearing uh, Ferragamo's looks over to me and she goes, hi, I'm Faith. I was like, (laughs) are you for real? And uh, Faith and I became very good friends. We scheduled all of our chemo appointments together. Um, Anyway, made it through that cancer, made it through the divorce. I will tell you the mad, when I got to court for my divorce by myself, because I didn't tell anybody we're working on that. Um, the magistrate was Magistrate Hope. Her name was Hope. I was like, what is happening? Um, so I got this new job. They said, you can move to Austin. Uh, oncologists were like, go, oh, have fun. Yeah, cancer's over. Ooh, drove across country, new life, no husband, no dog, no family. It is going to be fantastic. He said, do me a favor when you get to Austin. Just, you know, you, guys, you still got to do the blood work every single month. I was like, God, I have our blood work. No problem. I gave the blood work. I moved here in May of 2019, June 7th of 2019. I was back in the chemo chair here in Austin with stage four cancer again. And I knew no one. And I will tell you, there's people in this room that came to my chemo. Um, I knew where to get chemo in Austin before I knew where the grocery store was. That's, that is what happened to me. So I, again... Um, I'm going to wrap up very quickly. Uh, I did that six months of chemo and I didn't realize that chemo, they were just given to me to stay alive. There wasn't, they were looking for a donor. I had to get a bone marrow transplant. And so we're going through this whole process to get a bone marrow transplant. I'm losing about three to five pounds a week. Looking, I mean, I got to my goal weight. We'll say that. Um, I did. I looked, I mean, if I wasn't yellow and gray, I looked cute. Um, and, uh, couldn't find a donor, couldn't find a donor. Nephews, cousins, sisters, everyone got tested to be my donor. Couldn't find a donor, couldn't find a donor. I was like, what am I gonna do? You know what I mean? But I, for some, I had this will, really weird stillness that you guys taught me. I was like, it's going to work out. And then also to not get crazy about all the, there was two things that were going to happen. There was only two answers. I was going to live or die. That was it. There was no three, four, five, six. There was two answers. And so that was it. And all of a sudden, um, they called me and said, we have a donor. And then within four days I left, uh, Austin and went back to Baltimore Johns Hopkins hospital and stayed there for four months. And they shot me out April of 2020 into a pandemic with no immune system. Go have fun. Um, uh, but you know, some things I sat with my sister, I'll end up this, that woman, uh, hold on, give me a second. Puppies, kitties. Okay, back. Um, I needed a caretaker, and I had just gotten divorced. I needed round-the-clock care. My sister left her family and three kids to move in with me in an apartment at Johns Hopkins Hospital. This woman that disliked me so much as an adult took care of me. Every single day, I have very few memories of those four months because I was so sick. She took such good care of me. 
And I will tell you, that is the process of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is what happens here. The relationship's healed. She's my biggest fan. I could not have done it without her. And we were sitting in the hospital one time, and I had given all my nieces and nephews, like, 23 and me, because I was like, it's going to be a science it's going to be a science project. We're going to do it all this year, and then we'll do it next year, and it'll be really funny. Uncle Jason's not related to you. It's all science. Like, I thought we were going to have fun. Um, so we did that. I'm sitting next to my sister in the hospital getting chemo or radiation or whatever, something. And um, we both get the 23andMe alert at the exact same time. I was like, oh, my God, what are we? Are we English? Are we Irish? What are we? What are we? And, uh, oh, we're half-siblings. Okay, okay. Um... <laughs> Okay, um, didn't see that one coming, and uh, that's why I couldn't find a donor in my family, because it's not my family. Um, <laughs> apparently, my mother at 24 did the same things I like to do at 24. I did not get pregnant. Um, <laughs> and I will tell you that it was a hard thing to live with, and I'm okay, and I can live with it. And I decided because it was my decision. My sister and I talked. I said, "This is my decision, not yours. Mine. It's my story." Because she actually has the mom and dad that we were raised with. I have the mom and a fantastic father. Just happened to come from somebody else. Um, you know those work parties in the '70s. Anyway. Um, <sighs> I chose not to tell my mom and dad that I know this. That is Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if I was brand new or if I was still drinking, I would tear this family up. There's no reason for me to break my dad's heart. My dad has no idea. There's no reason for me to break his heart. I got in touch with my biological father once. Um, My biological father is an alcoholic. He's a complete drunk. He's an unemployable drunk. His son, my half-brother, died of cirrhosis of the liver. His daughter hasn't spoken to him in over 30 years. He said, if you call me, make sure you don't call me after seven. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this is a one-off, honey. Um, and he said, I don't want you to think ill about your mother. And he said, I knew your mother well. I was like, apparently. Um, I'm a horrible father. I've always been a horrible father and a drunk. And your mother made the best decision to protect you. And that's what I think about my mom and my dad. They were they the best? No. Were they the worst? Absolutely not. And I can't believe, like, imagine a 24-year-old woman having to make this decision and keep this secret, and she's still keeping this secret. She has no idea that I know. One thing I do know, I know where I got alcoholism from. I was like, woo, okay. And don't think I didn't do a Google search on his address. I was like, I might be in the will. I was like, oh, not that trailer in Kansas. (laughs) Never mind. I'm out. Um, So I just want to, sorry, I apologize for going a couple minutes late. I just want to really thank you for the opportunity to speak here. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no way I could have gotten from December 1st, 1998 to here today without Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.